0: We're going to talk a little more this morning about evangelism in the early church, the apostles. We're going to look at Paul here in Athens today. A lot to glean from this for us in our days. So if you'd bow with me quick, we'll start in prayer and see where this takes us this morning. So Lord, I do thank you for being with brothers and sisters again this morning. And thank you that we have this incredible privilege to be able to come together in this time in history. And... um, talk about your word and talk about the reality of you and what you're doing in each of our lives i pray that you'd open the eyes of our hearts this morning that supremely as always lord we'd see you we'd see what you're doing and we'd see our lives in light of that and um, i pray that it would stir us to be humble of course but to love you and find great delight in how you've put us in this place and time and history for a purpose Then we would understand that and um, it would stir us to, Lord. So thanks for this time, and we look forward to what you'll teach us in your word this morning. And so here we are, Lord, we're here to hear from you, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we've been talking a little bit about the apostles, and um, we left last week a little bit in Lystra, where there was some, we talked a little bit about the reality that as Paul and the apostles, particularly Paul that we see in the examples, moved away from just ministering to the Jews, and that was always his custom. He always would go to the Jews first. As he moved more into what we call a pagan world, and we're going to see a lot of that this morning, he did some different things than he did specifically with the Jews. And some of that's going to really be applicable to us in our world, because we deal, we're not dealing with the Jewish world. Now again, there's a lot of variation, and maybe at the end I'll have a little bit of time to address that, because... Um, so a couple of you asked me questions about focusing on the gospel, which is what we've been emphasizing in here. Um, but the other thing we have to realize is that, and I didn't know how far to go with this this morning, but everything we do in a certain sense when we come to faith in Christ, everything we do in evangelism, in a sense, is cross-cultural. We're going to a world, even though they're friends and even though we lived <laughs> in that world, of people who think differently than we do. If Christ has come in our life, the Spirit's open our minds, we see his word, especially as we grow, we see things differently. We just do. We see different things than the world sees. And so everything you do is cross-cultural. You know, the most clear example would be if I go to another culture it speaks a different language, and I say, well, I have this gospel, it's the power of God for salvation. Well, it is. But if I begin to speak it in English, and they don't know English, it doesn't matter how... You know, how much I pound the pulpit and what I say, they don't know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, it sounds so simple, right? Because my language is often, it gets a little technical, but my language is a token. It carries meaning, right? It's not the, it's not the word I'm using, it's what's in the, what that word is carrying. Well, it's the same thing when we communicate with people. There's a sense in which when we communicate people cross-culturally, it's not just a language, but they think different. They use words differently. And we need to understand a little bit of that to be able to communicate with people, right? And so the good news is that Jesus calls us to be fishers of men. And for the the reality, for most of us, most of our life, people around us kind of know our language. And we know their language most of the time. But as we continue to live in a world that's getting more diverse and more pluralistic and more global and more all sorts of crazy ideas that are floating around, As I've said in here, it's a little bit different for some of us that are getting gray hair and been around. Things were a little more consistent in the world we lived in. Well, it's getting a lot more diverse. And so even doing an evangelism class talking like this, it's always interesting to me because, (coughs) you know, (coughs) say midlife and older, we think one way. And then a younger generation thinks the difference a, a little bit different because the younger people in the room, meaning, say, even 40 on down. Somebody's laughing at younger, right? But you know what I'm saying, they, they have literally swam in waters that some of us didn't swim in when we were that age. That's all I want to say, and we just need to be sensitive to that. And so as we get into evangelism, it's fascinating, God's covered all these bases for us. And so as we get this morning, we're going to see, like, Paul is clearly going into a group of people who are pagan, who don't know the Jewish world. Now, there's some in Athens that do, but specifically where he goes here, he's talking to pagan we could say purely secular people who don't have pieces of the puzzle put in place yet and he's going to go into their world and communicate with them so let's look at that this morning um we're looking at acts chapter 17 and i'd like to read this this morning brought my reading glasses some weeks i struggle with that a little bit but let me uh let me just read the text and then let's come back and make a bunch of observations and as i make the observations i'm gonna it's almost really uh yeah, you know, a commentary on the passage as we make observations. So similar to what we've done before, but a little more distinct on these verses to pull some ideas out, okay? So Paul was waiting uh, for the team in Athens, okay? Verse 16, uh, Acts 17, 16. <clears throat> His spirit was provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day. Uh, with those who happened to be present. also, uh, And also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others were saying, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean." Now all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Now, so Paul stood up in the midst of the Areopagus, verse 22, and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown god. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in the temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist." (coughs) as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day to which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead." Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among, them, among whom also were Dionysius and the Areopagite, Areopagite and um, a woman named Demarius, and others with, him. with them. So it's a fascinating passage. Uh, this sermon is actually printed, my understanding is printed on a brass plaque, there to this day in Athens, you can go see it, and the name of the name of the street there is actually named Dionysius out in front of this. It's very interesting the history. Two thousand years later, I've heard somebody else speak about that. I haven't seen it myself, but but let's look at this. Let's make some observations this morning, okay? As we go through here, I went through, you know, obviously studied it, read a, uh, a number of things, and and it just was interesting. So we're going to go you know, take most of our time and just kind of work through this. Now look at, with me at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting, notice here, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Remember I said earlier, we talked about Philip and Ethiopian eunuch, how the spirit, the angel, had moved Philip. And I said, if we really believe in a supernatural world and we walk with God, there's things that get stirred in our hearts. And maybe it's a work of God. Maybe it's an angel of God. Maybe it's something stirring us to move somewhere to talk to somebody, to communicate with somebody, and I've been saying maybe we should keep our eyes open to that, right? Like, keep our antennas out. Well, this is interesting because his spirit was being provoked. His spirit was being provoked. It literally means, that word literally means angered, infuriated. Like he saw these idols and what was going on in the world around him, and he was ticked. It literally means infuriated. It's a very strong word. And his spirit, he's looking at this, and you think of his spirit, okay? Prior to knowing Christ, he might not have been stirred like this at all. And this gets into something else I talked about, about a unified world. You know, there's something about the Holy Spirit comes in and lives within a person, lives within us, and the Holy Spirit, if you will, impregnates himself with our personalities and who we are. And so when it says spirit, it is a small s, but there's something real about Paul's soul his emotions, his personhood that's stirred by this, and it's stirred clearly by the Holy Spirit working in there, right? This is why when we read a passage or read a scripture, we can go, oh, that sounds like Paul who wrote that. Well, what do we mean? Well, the Spirit of God used his actual personality to do something. So was it the Holy Spirit or the man? Well, it was both. And so Paul, obviously, you know, walking with God, is stirred by what he sees, and so that just you know he was deeply this is this is similar to Jesus it's the same idea in John 11:33 this was when Lazarus died remember and he was going to raise him from the dead but he got there and all the people were grieving it literally says he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and if you go on in the passage it said he actually wept but that first movement here he was deeply moved is the same you could you could do the word study it's it's very similar he is upset He's watching these people grieve over death. Jesus hates death. He hates what's going on, and he is not very happy. Another place, Second uh, Peter 2. Remember this? When God res- rescued righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the perverted conduct of unscrupulous people, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day by day after, by their lawless deeds. He sees what's going on, and he's not happy. He sees it. It's just having eyes to see what's going on. It's interesting. So my question always comes to this is, what do you see when you walk around? Are we enamored? Do we think it's awesome and good, or do we, or do we grieve? Do we see idols of our day? and Does it break our heart? Does it stir us? Because it stirred Paul. And as we see here, it stirred Paul enough to do something about it. He was there just waiting for his comrades. He didn't go there technically on a mission. He didn't spend much time there. But what does he do when he sees all this, right? He responds. And how does he respond? Well, think of Jesus. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I tell you, raise your eyes and observe the fields that they are await for the harvest. It's like, open your eyes. What do you see? And again, as you look at your culture, as you look at your world, as you walk around the city of Lawrence, what do you see? How does it stir your soul? What do you do with that? Do you see? Do you have eyes to see? And Paul, all on this one verse, he had eyes to see, right? And it moved him. And and then what does it prompt you? In case we, we see what we're going to see here, what it prompted Paul to do, he went and started preaching. They need to hear the truth. They need to hear something, right? So what does it prompt you to feel and act and do? Okay, so let's keep moving here. So 17 and 18, so he was reasoned, he reasoned in the synagogue, which we've said is kind of his, he usually goes to the synagogue, there's lots of pieces in place, we've talked about that, Uh, reasoning with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, but look at this, and in the marketplace every day, some of your translations say day by day, with those who happen to be present, he'd go find anybody that was willing to talk, he just went, he just went and found them. Where are they at, right? And then also happened there, uh, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. So um, let's go back here. Uh, let me keep reading. Stoic philosophers conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others said, he's, you know, he seems to be proclaiming strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, okay? So he's, they're clearly hearing him preach about Jesus and the resurrection. I want you to catch that right on the front end as we get into a few other things that Paul does. He is preaching the gospel. He's reasoning with them. He's talking about, they're listening to this. What is this all about? But notice, too, they call him this babbler, right? A babbler. We'll get to that. But understand quickly, just Epicureans, I'm going to go through a couple of things here so you understand the backdrop, the context. The Epicureans, their goal is to, to avoid pleasure and pain. They're very materialistic. And though they kind of have a spiritual Again, this reminds me of our culture a little bit, folks, because though they kind of say, okay, there's gods out there, and we'll acknowledge the polytheistic world of these gods, they don't really see the gods as playing much, having much, affair, or much uh, uh, um, effect on the affairs of men. They're out there, cool idea, but I live my life fundamentally atheistic, as though there's nothing really influencing me. Okay? There's no afterlife. You live, you die, you're a bunch of cells, you're out in the ground, that's it. That's the Epicureans. Stoics, they believed in a self-mastery. Okay? They're indifferent to pain and pleasure, which would be an interesting discussion because this is, tends to be, you go to Buddhism and all these different religions of the world, one of the fundamental things they're always wrestling with is how do we deal with a difficult world? How do we deal, deal with suffering, pain and suffering? You know, The Buddhist tries to ignore it. Om, 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 It doesn't really exist. The only reason it exists is because I think it exists. <laughs> Isn't this interesting? I mean, this is, the philosophers are always doing this. They're having this difficult time in life, you know, and you, because there is something wrong, right? And think about it. our worldview. We would say, I mean, I'm sure all of you could agree with me. Why do we say something's wrong? We say actually something really is wrong, right? It's sin, it, right? See how see how our worldview works, where they're looking at the same exact stuff we're looking at, and they're going, we just need to avoid it, or we're going to have a self mastery. We're going to we're going <clears> to <throat> you know puff our chest out and not let pain or any of these things affect us. Okay? They were a panthe- uh, pantheist, so God is in everything. Everything's part of God. Everything, God's in everything. Um, we'll come back to the, some other beliefs they believe there, too. But um, notice they call him a babbler. I found this interesting. So oh, what's this babbler trying to say? Now, here's the deal. He's not very smart. If you look up that word, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's posing as an intellectual. Where do you get your Ph.D. from? Where did you graduate from, Paul? See? You see how that works? It's very interesting. You're a babbler. You're talking about ideas. You're picking and choosing a bunch of idiotic ideas, and you really have no place in this sphere to talk to us because you don't have the credentials. That sound familiar? (laughs) You're just not that smart. Okay, now look what He says, Uh, let's drop down here now okay so what he does in the end here i want to move through our time but he gets visited he gets invited to come speak at this uh, at this hall the areopagus it's think of the university setting the big open square where you get to come and share your ideas and so um 21 talks about that the athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new Interacting over ideas and thoughts and what's true and what's not true and all that stuff, right? It so fits our our world. It so fits Lawrence. It kills me. So, you know, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and here we go. And um, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Okay? I see that you're very religious. He notices that they're pursuing certain things. Religious. Okay? It's something I've asked you before. I ask people this all the time. Do you think about spiritual things? See, he sees something about them, and he says, oh, you're very religious. And then he goes on, your objects of worship, notice this, and you guys see this, it jumps out at you, but you need to understand what he's doing here. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, objects of your worship, okay, you, idolatry, right? Like, you worship things, and you could ask that question today, what do people worship today? What do people worship in your culture? Self, autonomy, right? We're seeing it in all our culture. I have a right to do anything I want. Really? We have a right to do anything I want? Really? You know, and we could have a huge discussion about all that. But what do we worship? And he notices that they have objects of worship, right? And uh, your obje- I even found an altar with this inscrip- inscription to an unknown God. And then he says, uh, Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, this unknown God was not... This is the thing where we start, I start stepping into something. I thought, oh, I hope everybody will really don't hear what I'm not saying and listen to the very end. Because notice what he does here, what Paul's doing. Remember, he was just there preaching gospel, the gospel. I mean, it's Paul, you guys. He's not going miss, to miss a stroke on getting to the truth of the gospel. But notice what he does. He, goes to, he takes something that they have, this unknown God... For them, they didn't put this up in some kind of virtuous way, looking for the true and living God like we know God. That's not what they're doing. You, Paul is using something. They had a completely different idea. They were polytheistic. They believed in lots of gods, and they put that altar up to cover their tail in case they missed some god showing up. It's similar to what happened in Lystra. Do you remember? They were afraid that this was Zeus and Hermes because they had missed them before. And so they put up this altar going, okay, if, if some God shows up that we don't know about, we can say, there, are we. we got you covered. Now, the point I want you to get is that that's re- I mean, that's not even remotely related to us as Christians. That's not what they're doing here. But Paul's willing to use that as a doorway to get somewhere. He's willing to use their idea, their thought that's wrong. And he goes, oh, let me take this and let me turn it. <laughs> He knew their worldview. He knew their stories. You could say he knew their media. He, knew, he used their concept. He used their authors. Now, as soon as I go there, we start getting nervous, right? Because we've had a huge issue in the, in the church, right, with pragmatism, and what are we ushering in and what are we not? So f- listen, let's follow all the way through before we're done with this, okay? They believed in these fundamental elements. We'll see as he talks here. In other words, those classic philosophers in the beginning... They were trying to figure out, like, what's the ultimate reality of the world? If you go back far enough, and I've kind of said that in here too, and I say it a lot of times, I say the same things over and over a lot of times, but if you, everything you believe today, it's like a domino effect. I don't care what it is. Everything you believe, abs- absolutely, a math thing, a biology thing, a theological thing, it doesn't matter. You believe something today, and it's, you believe that because you believe something before that. And you believe that because you believe something before that. And if you could trace that all the way back, you've got to come to a beginning point. That's the ultimate reality, the self-existent beginning reality of all things. If everybody did that, they'd have to come to a place. And you're going to come to a place that's either nothing or there's God. There's an actual objective reality there. What is it? Well, these philosophers are trying to figure that out. They're actually trying to figure, it, and they're trying to think is it fire? Is it air? Is it... If you read these classic philosophers, they're going all the way back. These Greek philosophers, is it fire? Is it air? Is it water? What's the uncaused cause? Animation, things are moving. I brought that up in here. You touch a river, you pull your finger out. You touch the river again, it's a different river. Touch it again, it's a different river. Touch it again, it's a different river. It's always movement. So, where's the original river? I mean, that's, you know, these flies, they're sitting around, they've got a lot of time to think, and they're just movement. We could go further, and I, we don't get into all of that today, but th- this is the fundamental backdrop of everything, which is really interesting. This gets into apologetics, but even laws of logic. The law of non-contradiction. A is A. A is not non-A. Some of you are going, oh, what's that mean? But we, we do this all day long. You guys, we all do this. You think when I say left, I'm not meaning the right. When I say up, I'm not meaning down. That's the law of non-contradiction. When I say something, I'm not saying the opposite it's the only way we could possibly communicate. Where does that law come from? Where does it come from? A is A. A is not non-A. OK? Now, I've talked to atheistic philosophers at the university. And they say, well, those are first things, first principles. They just, they're just there. Um, they're just floating around the air. OK. So in a material world, a box of rocks, out of a box of rocks, one day said, "Oop! law of non-contradiction. Or a moral law, you shall not torture a baby for fun just popped out of a box or ox. It doesn't make any sense. You see? And the point is, is that everybody using the law of non-contradiction, which is everybody in the universe, is borrowing from my (coughs) worldview. You can't even have a discussion with me (coughs) unless God exists. Not just because God exists, but even philosophically, logically. You have to start with an A. There has to actually objectively be something there that's been there forever. What is that? you can't say nothing nothing is just nothing what is that it's our god he's been there forever right and it sets everything up well paul knows this so they're wrestling with all these things and he knows the backdrop of everything they believe they're borrowing from us isn't that awesome it's really cool, and, and I'm not trying to bury you this morning. That may be a new thought, and you're going, what? what? But just think about it. Just, so he knows this stuff. That's the thing I want you to catch. He knows what they're thinking. <clears throat> so then he goes down here, and I want to jump ahead. <clears throat> we'll come back. Because he's very poignant. He's very powerful in his preaching. But drop down, to, because I want to tie this thought together. Look at verse 28. He's talking about, uh, he says, uh, they, they, they would seek God if perhaps they might grow up for God. This is 27, though he's not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. Okay? We are his offspring. Here's what I want you to catch again. Remember, Paul's using unknown God. Their idea it's not, does not come from our Christian idea. And he's using that as a springboard to preach to them. He does the same thing here. This is really interesting. Epimenides had this quote. He was one of these philosophers that they would have known about when he says poets. One of their thinkers Live and move and have our being. He says, yeah, you guys got your guy, this guy in your culture. He's saying this all the time. Aratus, we are his offspring. That's when he says, you're poets. Okay? See, here's the thing. And again, I'm, I'm going to start stepping into some ground we need to be careful. He could have referenced Scripture, and he didn't. He actually used their thinkers who were saying things that were actually true though they didn't know the source of that truth, and they didn't know where it came from. But he actually used their stuff to make his case. Okay, That doesn't mean he didn't use Scripture again. Don't hear what I'm not saying, because we've already seen he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So throughout this whole thing, he's preaching the truth. But for a doorway to communicate with them, he wasn't afraid of going, your own guys say this. Look what it points to. Your own guys say this. Your own movies say this. Your own art says this. What's it actually point to? And then he, he ran there, see? So let's keep moving here. This gets into, real quickly, a dilemma in missions, evangelism, cross-cultural. Like, how far do you go with this stuff? That's all I want to do today. I mean, I know, like, this gets everybody nervous, right? And I just want to get you, Hudson Taylor was known. Hudson Taylor got in huge trouble. You guys familiar with the name Hudson Taylor? China Inland Missions. This great historic missionary he got in huge trouble with England because he's trying to reach the Chinese people and he started dressing like them and he ended up with a ponytail like the Chinese people and they had a fit back in England. Oh, he's become a pagan. Oh, he's hedonistic. Oh, he's giving himself over. Okay? He was trying to identify with the people. Now, you could have a discussion about the methodology and go, I don't know if that was smart or smart. I mean, we could always debate that, but what was his impulse? The impulse was to reach the people. And going outside of the church, which is the lighthouse of doctrine and truth, Kind of tipping my hand to the philosophy ministry philosophy this is this wall needs to be really high this is what we hold to but when you go out in there in the world how are you going to connect to those people cross-culture and how far do you go and what do you do first millennium missions okay we tend to think this first millennium remember it was all kind of quote-unquote roman catholic that's all i want you to understand right before the protestant reformation They had all these orders and missions. They had Jesuits and Benedictines. And they would go out and they would find these pagan peoples. And I mentioned that, I think, last week or the week before. This is where we get a number of ideas now that we get really nervous about when they brought in saints and all these interesting ideas. A lot of that came from missions. They brought these ideas in because they'd go find a pagan people who had a pagan idea. And they'd say, oh, we can use that idea to introduce Christianity. And again, you could have the discussion, was that the smartest move or not smart move? That's a fair discussion. But the question we have to ask back here is, is the impulse. Here's another one, with C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. You guys are familiar with some of his stories today, right? And again, we could question theology of these guys and all sorts of stuff. That's not my point. But they really believed imaginative stories, what they called myths, were doorways to the true myth. And when they said myth, they didn't mean like a fairy tale. They mean the real gospel. But they th- saw stories, imaginative stories in the human mind as opening the human mind to the transcendent, to ideas, to thoughts and they use those to try to step through and bring the true story again, we can have all sorts of discussion we're talking some muddy water but just understand their impulse was to, to bring truth to a people through a means and so i'm always asking what's the initial impulse this missional evangelistic impulse a lot of times the impulse is right again we have to think through methodology we have to think through ooh, what are we doing with this I remember a time the, the evangelist uh, in recent times went to the Mormon tabernacle. And he got blasted for going to the Mormon tabernacle. Because, of course, Mormons think they're Christians and they're really not. Right? And he got blasted for going there. But his impulse was like, I could go to these people and I have an opportunity to actually preach the gospel to them. And on the front end, if you read his sermons that he said there, he told them, Our, my theology is different than yours. My view of Jesus is different than yours. Now, we could discuss, should he have done that, because maybe it gave credence to something, right? That's a discussion itself. But the impulse was, but I get to go to these people on their turf and use some of their language and bring about the gospel. That's the initial impulse. What do you do with that, right? So, so there's the caution, right? There's the Trojan horse idea. Hope you're familiar with the Trojan. Are we all familiar with the Trojan horse, please? I'm finding in my life that I use examples, and some of you I didn't know, you know... <laughs> So you guys all know the Trojan horse, please tell me you do. Okay. Right, we have to be careful about that, right? We could bring in the Trojan horse, and that's happened in the church. It's happened in the church in the West. We bring in ideas. We try to be so pragmatic. Maybe the impulse started with saying, hey, we want to get connected to the culture. That could question all sorts of things. Do we just want to be liked? Are we equivocating? I mean, I get all that. You have to have those discussions. But at some point, are we bringing in a Trojan horse? Absolutely. We're bringing in something that actually begins to dissolve us on the inside. And it's really dangerous. And that's happened in our culture. Okay? Right? At the same time, we've got to be careful about being judgmental of people that actually are trying to reach people, like Hudson Taylor. I mean, he was actually trying to get to the Chinese people. His goal wasn't to equivocate, his goal wasn't to compromise. His goal was to try to identify with the people. Can you see that's a line that we have to kind of walk? That's all I want you to recognize. And when you get involved in the missions of the world, and I've had some discussions in here with people, this gets really muddy. It just really does you go to another culture I, you know i spent some time a few years ago for about six years in africa you know a guy comes to faith in christ and he's got two wives what do you do what do you do remember in ukraine in the 90s right after the communist wall fell down we were going in and training church planners and you go into a village where the bulldozers came through and literally you know just decimated the ch- physically the churches they were just literally bulldozed down bows down pastors were killed or thrown in prison And you had this little, in a village, I'll never forget. I get emotional about it. The the church in that village was this handful of about a dozen people. And they met in a room about the size of one of our restaurants here. That was their house. And they would meet. And I'm never going in there. We're going in there to give them training. Is it the church in that village? There was one older man who came to faith in Christ. The rest were women and children. You ask them a question any kind of biblical theological question and they all look to this older woman and she would have the answer so in a sense who was the pastor in that community and yet we look at our bibles and go "Ooh, leaders in the church are supposed to be men don't have a problem with that but what do you do with that in that setting you see what i mean it gets to be this muddy water not to deviate from the biblical thing but what do you do how do you how do you, how do you do that? And we, we had to come up with ways of solving all of those problems. But the impulse was to get the gospel to them and plant the church there, and now you find muddy water, right? That's all I'm saying. So Paul entered into this in a pagan world, and he wasn't afraid to use certain things to get him somewhere. That's all I want you to see. <clears throat> now, here we go. This is where he, he's hard-hitting in the middle of this, okay? I wanted to show you what he used, but look what he does. <clears throat> The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made the, all the nations. They should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Just understand that in this is a number you could say attacks or things completely contrary to what they believed so in the middle of it he did preach something that absolutely was going to rile them up and we could we aren't going to have time to unpack all that but just think they're materialistic they're you know pantheistic they're polytheistic and he's gone uh-uh didn't work that way not at all your ideas are wrong and he preaches it okay and what does he do <clears throat> What does he do? So first of all, he starts with God the creator, <clears throat> which is interesting in and of itself. He's going back to the beginning, say the beginning domino. They're looking at a world. They're trying to figure out everything. And he's going, I'm going back to the original reality, the creator. And that's interesting in the scripture and in the world because this gets into a whole discussion about creation. Because at the end, it, all of these things kind of go back and go, okay, how are you, you going to start your discussion? What is the foundation of this entire thing? And you think of the huge debates in our culture, right? Creation and evolution and all this sort of thing. And and, and that's a profound discussion in in and of itself. Did God do this or did he not? How did he do this? Yes or no? And then there's even a question behind that, like I brought up with you. We could talk about those evidences, and you could debate those all day. And there's some profound evidences that clearly show certain things that we (laughs) we know are true. But you step behind that and say, "But, but, but even behind that, you're using things to try to give me evidences that you borrow from my worldview. That's what I'm always emphasizing. By the way, for those of you who are intrigued by that, that's called presuppositional apologetics. It's kind of the world I kind of lean into, okay, just for what it's worth. Some of you don't even care. It doesn't make any difference. But, like, I could sit here and debate evidences with you. I'm into that, too, but at the end of the day, I want to go, wait a minute, before we even talk about that, let's step back. You're using things, logic, laws of inference, laws of non-contradiction, to debate me the fact that you're here to debate me and open your mouth proves that my view works and my view is right so before we even talk about all the evidence as well why don't we talk about that see so god's the creator this stood against what they believe so again all i want you to say is he's walking a line while he's not afraid to use their stuff in the middle of it he's still preaching the truth can you see what i'm getting at that's why when i was going through this i'm going You know the application of this in my world and the relationships i have in your world there's these lines that you got to kind of think through okay oh you saw that movie okay have you ever thought about what that really leads to boom you know can we do that should we not do that when do we do that epicureans the matter was eternal no need for a creator stoics pantheistic everything is part of god he's standing against their ideas and he's preaching the truth god's the ruler He's the source of all life, laws of logic, animation, uncaused cause, the very thing I've been sharing with you. He's sovereign. He controls everything, right? That's, that's our doctrine of sovereignty. That's the doctrine of who God is. He, like, he is the infinite God. Nothing slips through his fingers, nothing. He reveals, Right? You go through here and he's talking about general revelation. Let's go down. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. Guess what? The very fact that you're where you're at in history, a male or a female, a certain ethnicity, a certain background, is all the ordination and hand of God. The whole thing then he goes on uh, they would see god if perhaps they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us for in him we live and move and exist as he said being the children of god we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver and he goes on he basically is opening the door here so god reveals himself both in natural (coughs) revelation if you guys familiar we talked about that in our systematic theology there's natural things in the world that god has put his fingerprints there it all comes from god but then look what he starts doing though he starts moving this. Verse 30. Let's see if I put this here. Yeah. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. They should repent. They should turn from what they put their tr- trust in, just like he did in Lystra. You, you guys are trusting in these vain things, you're trusting in wrong thinking. And now he starts turning it, and he starts moving to what we would call special revelation, right? So he touches on man, he's dependent, he's finite. You may not have known, but now you do. I'm telling you, it's now time to repent, right? Um, Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man. Our Bibles probably have a capital M there, right? Whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now we're going to special revelation. You can't be saved apart from special revelation. Natural can kind of line up all the, you know, get the fingerprints, you're intrigued, something's going on, I know there's something more. It can tell us a lot of things about life, but it can't get you the special revelation of, of the gospel, right? And so that's where the gospel fits in. You may have now known it, now you do, judgment, righteousness. We talked about this over the, over the weeks, familiar ground for you guys. And then what's he do? He gets to Jesus, Right? A man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The work of Christ. Right back to God, man, and Christ. And then there's repent, right? It's the same thing we've been talking about. He he gets to the gospel, he is preaching the gospel in the midst of using their thinking for doorways to get to the gospel. Isn't that cool? kind of amazing. So what I want to do with some of our time here, I think I have enough time. I have a friend that graduated, and I say this so you know as I read this, so you don't get freaked out, because at first you go, oh, what's he doing? Um, this is a friend, um, JD, this is Cody. Cody, He's met him. Cody's planning a church in North Dakota, <clears throat> very similar to what we have here, same doctrine and everything. He graduated from um, uh, Master Seminary, MacArthur Seminary, and he actually, for a couple of years, worked for Master Seminary, recruiting men from around the country to go there. And I say all that, because this guy is like this biblically astute, theological, solid guy. Okay? And he loves sharing his faith with people. And so in a manual he put together on evangelism, he tells this story. I want you to hear this story, okay? So to illustrate, he said, I had a conversation. Uh, I won't tell you who it was. We'll just go past that since I'm publicly talking. And I had the opportunity to talk to this young woman about her personal be- views and beliefs. It became clear in speaking that she had some version of kind of new age, weird spiritual views. She essentially saw God as the oneness of the earth, that we are all emanations from that oneness, and find our unity in the spirit. Okay? So she had some wonky ideas. He recognized it. So at one point in the conversation, I asked if she recalls any particular moments or experiences in her life when she was most considered spiritual things you ever think about religious things? See, you see what he's doing? She went to tell him that this happened during an especially difficult time when she, was, she had lost her grandma to, through death. She remembers spending a lot of time grieving and praying. One evening as she sat there in her grandma's house, she saw an owl fly into a nearby branch. It just so happened that her grandma had a real love for owls, enough of a love that this was something special to this girl, and she knew it was a strong interest of her grandma. She rem- remembered looking at the owl and feeling an incredible peace, and she felt as if her grandma was coming to say hello. through that owl. As we spoke, it became apparent that this experience was so powerful for her, it became the very basis for her beliefs. In fact, the experience was so real and so personal, her eyes began to fill with tears as she cried and talked about it. She said in that moment she felt such a strong connection to her grandma through the owl, she assumed life must hold some form of reincarnation and that we must be all part of the same oneness. This is how the gal sees life, okay? So in that moment, he asks the question in his training manual, what do you do? Where do you go? Do you tell her her beliefs in reincarnation are completely illogical? Do you tell her that her experience is illegitimate? Do you tell her that's just silly to think her grandma visited her in the form of an owl? And he says, no. You realize this is a real person caught in a real point of despair. You realize there are a thousand beacons or alarms or signals that are all sounding off in her heart, causing her to search for answers. But the truth is, she doesn't necessarily see the signals. So what I attempted to do in that moment was to point out the signal and what the signal is actually pointing to. Now, what do I mean? Okay, Think of the experience from her perspective. What kind of longings, desires, and disappointments does she have in her heart? So here are some things he pointed out. First, she sincerely was upset by the loss of her grandma. She was angry at death, it seemed unnatural, and was certainly painful. Second, she sincerely desired that one day she would see her grandma again, so that there was a desire for eternity and everlasting life. There was also a strong desire for personal relationship. Third, she willingly acknowledged that she has a greater desire to see her grandma as a person someday than see her grandma as an owl. There was a belief that to be human is to be a better place than an animal. People are higher forms of creatures and hold dignity and abilities that owls don't. Fourth, she genuinely felt a strange connection to her grandma when they all appeared as if this moment was orchestrated by something greater, a greater power. So she believed someone had heard her prayers and set this moment up. That was all in her belief system in kind of a strange, awkward way, right? So what's he do? Each of these emotions, desires, and longings lay buried in her experience. Each served as a signal going off, doorway, an opportunity, and I would say a signal pointing to the Christian God of the Scripture. So this is where I took her. So what did I do at that moment? Well, I began to ask her questions and talk about it. Carefully moved towards the gospel. First, I told her that I was sorry for her loss. Second, I thanked her for the transparent willingness to share. Third, I said to her, I can tell that this experience was very impressionable in your life, and as I've listened to you share, I've noticed some fascinating things going on in your heart and mind. In fact, I hope this isn't too bold, but if you believe that your experience was true and legitimate, which I think it was, I think your experience points to a very different understanding of God than what you've claimed you believe. Could I share with you? She said, go ahead. First, you said you were saddened by death. That seems so unnatural. You see, the Bible says death is unnatural. We are told that the death is the result of sin. In the beginning, this is not how God created the earth. And in the future, death will be done away with, which brings me to my next point. Second, the Bible says that death is not the end, it's the beginning. We each long for eternity because we are eternal beings, and the reason we hope for a long future is because there is one. Third, another thing you hope for is to see your grandma again. The Bible explains that God has created each person as a unique being, and each person will continue to exist within the uniqueness for eternity. One day, for those that love Christ, they will receive new and perfect bodies and function much like they do now, without all the the bad stuff, though. And this is the case because God created humanity above all creatures of the earth. God gave humanity a unique and distinct honor and privilege above all the animals. It appears counterintuitive to your own beliefs that we would become lower living creatures after death. Fourth, you sensed on the night that everything was set up by someone. And I would say it was. Every day we experience the common graces of God, sovereignty, right? The Bible declares that God is infinite, eternal, holy, and personal. He cares for his creatures and regularly shows grace to every person and creatures within it. The Bible says nothing is an accident and that he knows the thoughts and intentions of every person. It's at least possible, if this is true, that God heard your prayers, saw your pain, and in that moment granted you a special grace of bringing you some good memory of your grandma by providentially having that owl land in that very spot at that very particular time because God cares for you. Lastly, I said, all these things, longing, desires, and heart make sense when you compare them to the teaching of what God says in the Bible. But if your belief about God is true, how do you make sense of them? In your view, death is natural. Humans are just animals. Good and evil are erased. And he was able to go on to share the gospel. Now, we may not all be that articulate at that moment, right? But you see what he did? He took that gal's ideas that were actually wrong, though there may be an impulse pointing somewhere, and he took it, and he ran with it, and he got it to the gospel. Exactly what Paul did. Kind of fascinating, right? So we're running out of time. We're about done with time. So I just wanted to encourage something, okay? But some of you ask questions. We always focus on the gospel. The center is always, how do I get to the gospel? We've been saying that. But in our lives, we're going to cross people that do have discussions and questions. Now, for most of us, really, most of us, Jesus said, okay, he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I always think about this. If I want to take my kids or my grandkids fishing, am I going to take them to a hole where there's no hungry fish? No, I want them to catch fish. And if I'm following Jesus and he's going to make me a fisher of some men and he's a sovereign God, don't you think he would cross my life with people that maybe I could actually communicate with? I think so. (laughs) Are there other layers to other people that are farther away from my worldview that take work to get there? Well, yeah, that's kind of the art I've been talking about that we lean to learn and develop. And uh, that's a growing thing. And so we don't need to get freaked out by it, but I want you to recognize that in the Apostles, you know, We've been seeing this right along. We start with the Jews and their certain thoughts. Philip and Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, Paul was able to go into some really clear places and a lot of your people in your life, we you live in the Western world, they're going to have a lot of the pieces in place and you can go somewhere. And then you're going to get to pee with people. And we live in Lawrence. This is one of the unique things about a university town. There's a lot of people like the Areopagus. And so we need to learn. We need to think. We need to understand. We need to say, hmm, what's the doorway I could use to go there? And we need to be interacting about that because There can be Trojan horses too, right? So we have to be careful. So, anyway, we're done. I hope that was helpful. We'll carry on next week. What I would encourage you to do is go through the book of Acts. It really is fun to do this. And just read through the book of Acts slowly and get, especially to all the different sermons. We did it a few weeks ago. And think through the different things they're thinking. Like even this Areopagus. I mean, this had to actually, while God gives us his word and here's some snippets of the message, he'd been doing this for days. I mean, what did he do for eight hours? He must have talked about a lot of stuff, and you've got to wonder what the gist of the kinds of things he was doing to get people to the gospel, right? And it's the same thing throughout the book of Acts. So, God bless you. We're going to worship in about 15 minutes. So, See y'all.